0: Hello and welcome to the third episode of The Muse. I am your host, Marfine Chan, and I am so glad that you are tuning in. In this week's episode, I'll recap a lecture I attended this past Thursday at the University of Southern Maine by Richard Rothstein, the author of The Color of Law, one of my go-to books to learn about how federal, state, and local governments created segregated neighborhoods and enabled private housing discrimination. But first, The Muse. The voices you hear in that clip are the voices of Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, French President Emmanuel Macron, and British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who all at the NATO summit in London were overheard joking about President Donald J. Trump on a hot bike. The remarks were made during a reception hosted by Queen Elizabeth II at Buckingham Palace and were made in reference to President Trump allegedly being late to a meeting with Trudeau. President Trump was also 15 minutes late to a photo opportunity with Prime Minister Boris Johnson of the UK and the Secretary General of NATO. The remarks also followed a rocky start to NATO's 70th summit after President Trump criticized French President Emmanuel Macron for telling NATO members that they could no longer rely on the United States to defend and support the military alliance. President Trump called Macron's answers given in an interview with The Economist as quote unquote very very nasty and went on to say that he could see France breaking away from NATO. In my view, I honestly believe Macron just proved himself to be a Jedi Master in reverse psychology. President Trump has been NATO's chief critic from the start of his campaign in 2016 and the start of his administration, calling it quote-unquote obsolete and referring to NATO members as quote-unquote delinquent in an apparent jab at member states not contributing more in military spending. But as we see here, Macron calling NATO quote-unquote brain dead and saying that member states couldn't rely on the U.S. had triggered President Trump to do exactly what NATO members wanted, albeit in word only. French President Macron does have a point, however. Is the United States a reliable ally in the age of Trump? Especially in light of Trump's demands of a quid pro quo from Ukraine to investigate one of his political rivals in exchange for military aid to the tune of $500 million against Russia. When you add into the mix Trump's retreat from Syria, leaving it wide open for Turkish forces to attack our Kurdish allies and for our military bases to be occupied by Russian forces, no wonder the world is losing trust and faith in the United States. In many ways, the United States under Trump's foreign policy is eating itself alive. In the wake of World War II, throwback, We joined other world leaders and world powers to establish the United Nations and institutions to help safeguard against another world war. And this was done by drawing us closer together through trade and international development and the development of the rule of law. But Trump has attacked the UN Human Rights Council and the International Criminal Court, saying that the U.S. is not beholden to the very institutions we helped set up. The best way to explain it is to think of when the older siblings or friends in a group or family who make up rules for a particular game then insist that they themselves aren't beholden to those same rules while everyone else is. That's the best way that I can explain it because uh, I'm sure that we all have had those experiences. Um, but uh, essentially, you know, world leaders know and see President Trump for the fool he is. And there are plenty of videos and stories of world leaders snubbing the president and laughing at him. And so it's time for a, a reality check, America. The president has no clothes. In more local news, on Monday, December 9th at the Cumberland County Court here in Portland, Maine, Chelsea Cardilli was the first witness to appear in her brother Mark Cardilli Jr.'s trial for the murder of Isaac Muse, her late boyfriend, a Deering High School graduate, and a Somalian Muslim. In her testimony, she brought up her brother's racist and xenophobic comments about black people being at fault for being shot by the police and Muslims being terrorists. Mark Cardilli Jr., who was 24 at the time, shot Isaac Mews, age 22, in the back twice last March after he and his father got into a heated argument with Mews at their home in Riverton. Their argument was sparked when Cardilli Sr. asked his son to check on Muse at 1 a.m., the time Chelsea's parents agreed to let Muse stay until in their home. Cardilly Jr., who was on leave after spending five years in the Army, told police that he feared that he and his father uh, would be overpowered by Isaac. Cardilly's mom had left the house earlier in the night to call 911. Cardilli's attorneys argue that discrimination wasn't involved, but in my personal opinion, some red flags are raised and confirmed by Chelsea Cardilli's testimony on Monday yesterday. In a 2017 study conducted by the American Psychological Association, for instance, they found that when comparing black and white males who were equal in height and weight, participants consistently judged the black Men to be larger, stronger, and more muscular than their white counterparts. This was even more true for men whose facial features appeared more stereotypically black. Numerous other studies have pointed to bias in how people perceive black boys and men. In a 2014 study, for instance, black boys ages 10 and older were seen as less innocent than their white counterparts of the same ages. So, for Cardilly Jr.'s attorneys to assert that there was absolutely no discrimination or bias involved in this case is discredited both by numerous studies and by his sisters. This past Sunday, the Portland Press-Herald editorial board wrote a piece titled, Our View Lack of Affordable Housing is a Problem Across Maine. In that editorial, they discussed how a lot of the focus on the lack of affordable housing has been trained on population centers like the city of Portland, but that this is a problem that affects other regions in Maine as well. They went on to say that it is not a problem that can be described simply in terms of supply and demand, given that Maine's demographic issues and its population has not seen the kind of growth as compared to the existing supply of housing that Maine has, and while the uh, the press Herald leans toward the state being a part of the solution, I personally believe that people really do need to go beyond just the facts and the numbers provided in the survey done uh, by the Maine State Housing Authority, the the survey that uh, the the editorial board had cited in this case, um, to get to the root of the problem. In my in my personal view or shall I say in my view, pun intended, we not only need big structural change, we also need a massive paradigm shift when it comes to how towns, cities, and states engage in planning and the increasingly unrealistic expectations that folks like you and I have in terms of how we live, work, and play. Because we cannot continue to live, work, and play as if it's still the 1950s which is a very different time period we are not living in a period where it's post world war ii where there are lots of soldiers returning home um who can't find housing um and and where america was just a very different had a very different landscape back then and so but uh before i go into that and before i I tie that into uh my recap of the Richard Rothstein Color of Law lecture. Uh, Let's first take a break so that uh, you can give your ears a rest. So Welcome back. We are now at the segment where I just ramble on on an issue that I uh, hold near and dear to my heart. In this case, it's related to the Portland Press Herald editorial board's piece on affordable housing, but I'm going to tie it in with the lecture that I attended last Thursday at the University of Southern Maine by Richard Rothstein, who is the author of the Color of Law book he is a researcher uh he wrote for the new york times um shall i I should start first by saying and he is a research fellow with the economic policy institute and is a fellow at the thurgood marshall naacp legal fund so very smart guy very uh well spoken and very well written and 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 his book is is one of my go-tos for for this type of stuff um And so, I mentioned before the break that we need to think beyond sort of that 1950s paradigm uh, and 1950s view of of the American dream where, you know, you have um, a big house, a big lawn, a white picket fence, uh, and a car and a dog and two two or more children, oftentimes three to four children, um, because... They were dealing with, with different problems at the time. You know, America, you know, wasn't as developed in the rural areas. And and so the planners and the econo- economic development experts were dealing with a flood of soldiers returning from World War II. And so they had their own version of a housing shortage and housing demand. And so uh, what the federal government did was they expanded the, 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 the uh, resources of the Federal Housing Administration through the 1949 Housing Act, which was a, a huge step in, in, in home building and, and the boom of the home building industry and home buying and mortgages and, and, and lending and what have you. And also, uh, the, the U.S. also poured substantial amounts of money into building the interstate highway system. So, as Richard Rothstein talks about and in, in, talked about in his lecture and in his book, previously, uh, in in industrial companies uh, uh, and, and, and and factories had to be located near ports, uh, in urban cities, um, in in urban towns um, like you know, Boston, like New York, um, Newark, and 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 things like that, but. With the building of the interstate highway system, companies could spread out more and could locate anywhere really across the United States. And so um, not only that, but this also led to suburbanization and the rise of the suburbs and, you know, in in, in, darker, in, in the darker periods of the time in, to white flight as well. And so, this is when the American dream of, you know, owning a big house and owning a having a big lawn where your kids and your your dogs can run around, and having a white picket fence, and having a uh, at least one car, maybe two, um, really came into fruition. And, and so, suburbs offered the American dream to predominantly white families, but. As we have found out, it also created a lot of different problems. Not only white flight, but also urban sprawl, which increased our carbon footprint, which leads to development of uh, 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 and cutting down of forests, and, and and paving over of waterways and watersheds, and and polluting uh, the environment. During this time as well urban renewal cleared entire neighborhoods and destroyed entire communities because people who moved to the suburbs also had to find a way to access their jobs, access shopping centers, access grocery stores, and entertainment in urban centers and the cities. So, These suburban families had, you know, had cars that needed to be used, I guess you could say. And so urban renewal came along and highways and boulevards and avenues were built um, and paved over entire communities and neighborhoods, um, predominantly neighborhoods and communities of color. Um, and to, order, to, to make way for these uh, suburbanites to, to be able to access um, the downtowns and the main streets and the urban centers where their jobs and services and entertainment um, was to be found. And so people of color and communities of color were, were forced to, uh, to, to go to the basically segregated neighborhoods at this point in time. And and they were concentrated in those areas, uh, which which became um, more more, more uh, uh, even poorer. Uh, more these were the this was the time when slums became um, a dominant thing, uh, and so towns, cities, and states, you know, zoned and distributed land according to this this. New paradigm of, of, of where the suburban family reigned supreme in, in almost every single decision. Um, and, and where large lot sizes and single family homes and, and car oriented development was the norm of the day. Uh, and so during this time in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, of course you have the baby boomers that were coming along. Um, you also had the Cold War that was was coming on, uh, the Reagan Revolution, and, and how that affected politics to this very day, and, and how we view economics, and how we view work, and how we view family. Uh, but then, as we enter the 2000s, obviously, we have the recessions of the early 2000s, and before that, the dot-com bubble. Um, we have 9-11, and of course, the big 2008 housing crisis. These were uh major events that reshaped our politics and 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 I I would say shook the American dream to its very core. Uh terrorism, the growing pains of globalization, endless wars, climate change, and economic uncertainty and inequality all fueled a new economic reality that has a profound effect on every aspect of american life demographically in terms of declining birth rates you know who wants to have a baby uh when 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 they they're barely making um anything to cover expenses with two two jobs two people working two jobs each uh who wants to buy a house when they can barely afford to pay rent. Who wants to buy a car, a new car, or a new house when, when you know the their their two jobs are barely paying their student loan bills and debt. And and not only this, but we also see uh, decreases in life expectancy. And we also see, excuse me. Um. A, a decline and, and, and a, a loss uh, in terms of social and economic mobility and opportunity. These new realities, you know, this new economic reality. Sorry, I should say socio economic reality. You know, demands that we learn to live within our our, our means, not in the conservative sense, but it really. Changes how we view um, how we live, work, and play in terms of sustainability, in terms of being more conscious of our carbon footprint, and in terms of restructuring and, and, and reorganizing um, society and, and the economy um, to reflect a country that is also growing beyond its adolescence and youth. You know, America. You know, World War One and World War II, I guess you could say, was also its, its, its adolescent years, you know, where it was, <laughs> I guess you could say puberty, um, where it, 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 it was at the prime of its, its, it was growing into the prime of its youth. The 50s were, you know, some of the best economic times post-war. And, and, and now we're reaching a stage where, you know, we're figuring out, you know, there are bills to pay, you know, life is a lot harder. Um, I don't think, you know, maybe that's not the best analogy, but, uh, but I think we've reached that point where, you know, we, we, we have to be a little more realistic with, with, uh, with what we include in, 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 in envision the American dream as, you know, uh, maybe some people are going to hate me for saying this, but the American dream of the 1950s is dead. Sort of a play on the whole idea of, of Nietzsche saying that God is dead, but the American dream of the 1950s is dead. And we're living uh, uh, with the consequences of of a very, what I perceive as a very reactive and and, and not very proactive sort of planning and land use and economic development um, that had to deal with a housing shortage uh, uh, of that day and age. So when, when I referred to the, uh, the, the need to get at the root of the problem in terms of affordable housing... You know, the, the Press Herald did mention that, you know, people are retiring, but they're living in huge homes. Um, uh, three, four-bedroom homes that they, they, they have to pay the heat for and whatnot. And so I, I, I mentioned that, you know, we can't continue to live in a 1950s sort of lifestyle uh, that w- that where the, the car reigns supreme um where car oriented development reigns supreme we need more transit oriented development we need more focus on tighter knit communities and and urban communities urban centers which which will require you know things such as taller buildings honestly it means denser communities it means doing more with less in terms of what we expect out of home sizes and apartment sizes is it good for the planet to continue to expect that people are gonna have four or five bedroom homes and 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 four or five different children and and two three dogs and uh, and two cars or three cars? And so that means you know that we're gonna have to make get that government is going to have to make not the private sector, mind you, government. The public sector is going to have to make investments in light rail, in buses, in public transportation, and will need to create more bikeable and walkable communities, which is going to create some, some friction and, and problems because like, like in Portland, for instance, we, we, we want to make Portland more walkable and bikeable, but that clashes with the demand and the need for parking. I, for one, even though I, lo- I I believe that we need to make it more walkable and bikeable and more sustainable, you know, I'm the first one to tweet out if I'm ha- if I'm having trouble finding parking in downtown Portland. Um, and so, you know, you know, we, we need to find uh, 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 ways as well to to integrate solar, uh, wind and green energy into um, our modes of living and, and ways of living in terms of uh, buildings and, and, and whatnot and buses, you know, we have solar panels on a ton of different things now um, and so we really need to focus on building more tighter-knit and more community-oriented urban and town centers you know, a lot of, uh, of suburban and rural life is also built around the idea of privacy you know where that conservative idea of the father being the the king of his own castle, being the 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 uh, the one who made all the decisions, the breadwinner. Uh, but again, that's 1950s thought, uh, and we're not living in that time anymore, and so. Um, I'm getting a little little sidetracked, so I'll try to rein it back in. But uh, but you know we, we we do need to reimagine urban centers, um, and reimagine how we develop and expand and grow in a ways that are sustainable, and in ways that you know create more more civic engagement and more more community engagement among human beings who are social animals. You know, privacy does matter in terms of data and and, and life and and reproductive rights and and all those things, different things, but we also have to think about how you know, we as social beings are meant to interact and engage with each other. And privacy should be envision as as enabling that and and empowering that you know privacy and and liberty should be thought of in terms of um sort of not creating human silos and creating barriers and walls between each other but they should be thought of as sort of the 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 contracts and the basic that rights and liberties and, and, and are contracts that keep us Engaging and at peace with each other so that people aren't killing each other, stealing each other's information and and data and and all that stuff. So a little sidetracked, getting to a little more of the philosophical stuff. But uh, but uh, there's one other thing, too, that Richard Rothstein and and the Color of the Law book covers. And you all know me. You all know that I, I have a bend towards social justice. Um that my um, the arc of my moral moral fiber, I guess, bends towards social justice. Uh, and you know, and that's related to the darker history and, and the darker legacy of, of discrimination and segregation in and slavery in the United States. And in terms of housing specifically, in terms of the Federal Housing Administration, in, in terms of the federal government, housing policy, and, and state and local zoning and, and, and land use, there is a dark history and legacy of housing segregation and discrimination. In August
1: 1957, Levittown, Pennsylvania, attracted international attention when violence erupted as William Myers Jr. and his family moved into the three-bedroom house at Daffodil and Deep Green Lane. In almost all respects, the Myers family is close to the Levittown norm. They have three small children, the youngest only one month old. Myers served for two and a half years in the army and was discharged as a staff sergeant. He works as a laboratory technician and is studying for a degree as an electrical engineer. His wife, Daisy, is a college graduate. The Myers' home is modestly furnished and their late model family car was bought on time. They are very close to the Levittown norm, except in one respect. William Myers Jr. and his family are Negroes in an all-white community. Levittown reacted in a number of ways to the new arrivals. There were several hundred who congregated on the street in front of the Myers' house. And there were those among them who felt strongly enough to throw a rock through the picture window. Some view the incident calmly and indicate acceptance of the fact. But for others, the Myers moving into Levittown constitutes an infringement of their own liberties. And under the impact of this situation, they react with anger and force. What they say reveals their deepest fears and frustrations. Why did you select Levittown to live?
2: We were looking for a place to buy a home. We looked at Levittown, and we liked the homes here. We liked the advantages that Levittown seemed to offer in uh, comparison to other cities. And we understood that it was going to be all white, and we were very happy to buy a home here.
1: Do you think a Negro family moving here will affect the community as a whole? Definitely. In what way?
2: I think that, well, the property values will immediately go down if, uh, they are allowed to move in here in any number.
1: Can you give a basis for that judgment?
2: Yes, we used to live in Washington, D.C., and we saw a very good example of that there.
1: The repetition of an experience that was distasteful. Is there to be no escape from living near Negroes? And what if the dream of middle-class respectability? If a Negro family can afford what you can afford, How do you justify your feeling of superiority? The illogic of one's own position becomes apparent and in self-justification the old tribal myths are invoked. What other objections aside from the effect on property values do you have against the Myers?
2: The whole thing centers around the word integration Well, as Mr. Myers said, because his home has been anything but peaceful since he moved in. He's got three children. And uh, evidently, he feels that they will be accepted socially. And uh, I don't feel that they ever will be. But the whole trouble with this integration business is that uh, in the end, it probably will end up with, with mixing socially. And you will have... Well, I think their aim is mixed marriages and becoming equal with the whites. But the only way they're going to do that is by education and by bettering themselves, not by pushing in the way they have here.
0: Um, but we, you know, we are in the midst of a reckoning, I believe. And realization that the roots of slavery, the, 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 the failure, failure of re- Reconstruction, and the shadows of Jim, the Jim Crow era Still fester and linger You know what I love about The, the, the Color of Law book And about Richard Rothstein's lecture Is that he, he reveals for us The history of how agents of Jim Crow Agents of segregation Agents of, of Racism Beginning in the early 1900s engaged in, in, in administrative capture of the Federal Housing Administration and, and the Civil Service and sowed the seeds of segregationist thought and practices and sowed the seeds of racism and white supremacy, which impacted how the federal government steered resources and, and funding and tax dollars at the federal level and steered how local governments and states used and implemented the growing popularity of zoning and land use tools and housing policies the federal housing administration which was created by roosevelt roosevelt's new deal seen as a a, a the great progressive new deal it can also be <laughs> described as as a deal that favored the white working class. And I talk a lot about identity politics, and and people always tell me, you know, you need to stop talking about identity politics and and talk about, you know, class issues that affect all of us. But the the, the New Deal is an example of how, you know, just looking at class alone is not enough. You know, the new deal laid the foundation of framework for housing policy in the housing market for decades to come. Uh, and 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 there's been really no real remedies to to dig up that legacy of housing segregation and redress it. And you know, having the federal government as a guarantor and underwriter of loans for housing development You know, it allowed, yes, it allowed banks and lenders to fund housing developments left and right all across the country. But what people don't know at first is that, you know, the secret history of the FHA, the Federal Housing Administration, was that it was engaged in pushing for and sponsoring de jure or, or, or I guess you can say legal housing segregation by explicitly denying funds and denying federal investments in integrated housing developments and in in, in otherwise integrated communities. Instead, those funds went towards building segregated housing, housing for whites and housing for blacks. In addition, mortgages and, and homes backed by the FHA were required to include restrictive covenants that prohibited homes That were built for whites From being sold to black homebuyers So The suburbanization of America Disproportionately advantaged White Americans While also giving White families one of the best tools For building and growing wealth A home Home equity is by far One of the most effective and widely used Means of building wealth White homeowners then were more likely to be able to send their kids to college, were more likely to be able to provide their, their adult children with down payment assistance, you know, with home equity loans or, or, or what what have you. And they were able to, you know, have and provide their children with a safety net to fall on if things didn't turn right out right after college or in college or um, in the job market. And so segregated Segregation, sorry, uh, forced black families into communities and neighborhoods that were starved of federal funds and investments, like FHA loans and education funding, that were made amply available to white families in white suburbs, who also, by the way, had lower property taxes. And so, even middle class black families were, were forced into poorer, lower opportunity communities and you had the rise of slums and ghettos areas where 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 black people were forced to concentrate areas that as we've come to find out were over policed and, and, and areas where um, that gave rise to, to, to disproportionate incarceration of black and brown people and to make matters worse Urban renewal had governments and local localities uh, uh, designate designated these low-income communities as ghettos and slums and blight, which allowed them to bulldoze and pave their way through these neighborhoods in order to, like I said earlier, to build highways and boulevards and avenues and centers and parks that displaced communities and people of color and black people and brown people in order to benefit suburbanites and white families who came in and out and drove in and out of these urban centers where their jobs were, where their shopping was. And on top of that, industrial buildings and factories created a lot of air and sound pollution were also disproportionately located in and around communities of color where black and brown people were concentrated leading to lower life expectancy higher rates of asthma and respiratory problems and lower quality of life which profoundly affects the health and outcomes of kids of color in schools and in the streets Suburbanization and white flight go hand in hand. You know, especially as towns, counties, and states began to locate and build new schools far from communities of color, forcing white families to move farther away. And and, and again, white families had at their disposal rural development grants and programs like FHA home loans to help make this transition to suburban neighborhoods. So they can send their kids to suburban schools that, by the way, happen to be mostly pretty much all white. So by the time Brown v. Board of Education came, by the time the Civil Rights Movement came, by the time the 1968 Fair Housing Act came along. You know, segregated housing and segregated schools already had already done the damage and left scars on the American psyche. Efforts to integrate schools were met with white riots. Efforts to integrate communities were, were, were met with the same kind of riots, and both private and public entities and actors steered black families away from white communities and white families and steered white families away from black communities. Little has been done to fix any of that, as Richard Rothstein covered in his lecture and his book. You know, the Fair Housing Act didn't go and, and uproot the, the tainted roots of, of, of 60 years, roughly, of segregation, housing segregation, and, and segregated schools no it, it it what it did was it looked to the future and said you know no more housing discrimination and so the roots of segregation the roots of of discrimination are still running deep in what we see today as the modern american Urban neighborhoods, suburban neighborhoods, rural neighborhoods, and so there's obviously a lot more that I haven't covered, and obviously this is a lot because we're approaching 40 minutes, but uh, but definitely you know pick up the the book The Color of Law, again the author is Richard Rothstein I'll I'll have a link in the episode note and read it. You know I'll say I'll I'll let you know that. A good quarter of the book is mostly the references he uses. So it's about 250 pages or something like that. But read it. Think on it. Reflect on it. Think about your upbringing. Think about where you went to school. Think about who you grew up with. Who you mostly saw. Think about the opportunities that you had that might not have been opportunities that other people, you know, of color might not have had. And that's it for the third episode of The Muse. I am Marfine Chan. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Follow me on Instagram. Next week I will be interviewing Mary Davis, the Division Director of the Housing and Community Development Department in the City of Portland to talk about the Housing Report.